Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Dr. Matanya Horowitz. Matanya is the founder and CEO of Amp Robotics, an industrial AI and robotics company applying automation to modernize recycling and change the economics of the waste industry. What this means in practice is that Matanya and Amp make super cool robots that look through all the stuff you and I throw out in our blue recycling bins and pick out the stuff that has value to sell. Matanya is also maybe the most educated person we've ever had on the show. He's earned four bachelor's degrees and a master's degree from CU Boulder, and then holds a PhD in control and dynamical systems from Caltech. Matanya, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Well, we'd love to hear a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. How'd you come to start Amp Robotics? So Adam, as you know, uh, AMP works in the recycling space. We make all sorts of interesting recycling equipment around uh, artificial intelligence. But my background was really in robotics and AI. A lot of people listening to the show probably know more about recycling than I did uh, when I first started this company back in 2014. But yeah, I have always been interested in robotics. I think it's so cool. I think questions around intelligence are awesome. And I was looking for a place where I thought it could be useful and really found that in recycling. Yeah. How did you first discover this and the application of what you're working on to to this problem? So I was in graduate school and I saw some of these big breakthroughs happening in what's called deep learning, where for the first time you can start to have machines really start to see as well as a person. At the time, computer vision technology, this was like 2012, 2013, was honestly pretty poor. And when I saw some of these results, I was like, oh, this is going to be a big deal. Um, I need to find somewhere where I can apply this technology. So I started looking at a couple different things. I was looking at autonomous cars, but I was like, oh, there's some big hitters out there like uh, Google. I don't know if I could compete against that. There were lots of cool things happening in drones. I was pretty close to doing something with drones. Um, but I visited some recycling facilities. And if you go inside one of these facilities, you see there's people standing around conveyor belts sorting stuff by hand. It's pretty gross. There's very high rates of turnover. And, and really, the cost of manual sorting through recyclables holds the whole industry back. And so what I saw was the robots to automate sorting uh, were there. Uh, what was missing was a vision system that could identify all the stuff. And so it was this great fit with this technology I thought was going to be important with this interesting commercial opportunity in recycling. And so I just started talking to people in recycling and asking dumb questions and, and getting smart on the space. I actually bought a pair of textbooks that were like five inches thick. And I was like, okay, if I read these textbooks, I'll know recycling. And I read the textbooks, I knew a couple of things, but I didn't really know recycling. What's what surprised you the most as you become an expert on the waste and recycling industry, and not just robotics and, and computer vision? Well, you know, a couple of things... The recycling industry has its own kind of funkiness and, you know, incentives are really spread across multiple players in the space. And that was a real surprise. I thought if you sort of created something, if you created a piece of technology that could solve a a deep pain point for a customer, that would be sort of sufficient. But what I learned was you really have to understand this entire ecosystem and understand your positioning within it um, in kind of a real enterprise you know, sales kind of way. You, you needed to have that context and that knowledge if you really wanted to have an impact. Another thing that maybe a little bit more basic of a thing I, I learned that I was surprised about is that all of the stuff that we put in the recycling, 
uh, or and a lot of the stuff we put in the trash uh, can be reused or recycled, uh, and it has a lot of value. Um, the problem in the industry is that it costs so much to transport that material and to sort it out that if you're going to pull a dollar worth of stuff out, you end up putting about a dollar in or more. Uh, and so you have these kind of marginal economics, even though all this stuff is valuable. But of course, that's what got me really excited about it. If you could reduce that cost of extraction, recycling could be this really exciting business. Uh, obviously, right now, AI is all the rage. You've been doing elements of AI since the beginning. How is this new wave affecting or, or changing what you're doing and thinking about at AMP, if, if at all? So there are huge breakthroughs happening when it comes to this uh, kind of deep learning stuff that we use. Things that augment our data sets, more powerful neural networks that can identify stuff better off of the same data. Um, and it's allowing us to... Well, do a couple of things. Our cost of performance, uh, or our cost of creating performance improvements continues to drop. And we're using that in a couple of different ways. One is we're teaching our system to be more and more specific. So today we'll do something like identify number one plastics, but within that we now uh, identify uh, clamshells. So the type of thing that holds strawberries distinct from uh, bottles, which you know use the same underlying resin, but have different chemical properties. We're getting down to the point where we can identify stuff at the SKU level. And so we can do a couple different interesting things. We can attribute different waste streams to the packaging producers that created that waste. Um, if it's not being recycled, we can also allow the recycling facilities to deliver a much more precise chemistry. Because if you know what you're sorting out, you can say, okay, I know this is a Coke bottle and I know all the properties of the Coke bottle. I know the adhesive properties. I know, you know, how brittle it is and, and all sorts of things. Um, when it comes to the generative AI techniques, like the sort of large language models and things like this, it's incredibly exciting tech. I, you know, you're starting to see things that weren't really scalable before when it comes to human interaction becoming scalable. There's certain ways we're starting to look at things where it can help with coding, it can help with testing, it can help with integration. Um, but at its core, we're still focused on vision models at AMP. And so all of this is about sustaining improvements rather than something that's fundamental. Got it. Got it. Well, exciting times all, all around there. Matanya, building a robotics company, a computer vision company in Colorado, you've got some peers now, but probably when you started the company, there weren't a lot of other people doing stuff like this. What's it been like to build AMP in Colorado? You know, it, it's been good. I think what's nice is we're kind of a unique beast in Colorado, or we were a unique beast, uh, but as compared to, you know, San Francisco, you know, you really have this sort of wide net around Colorado and kind of all around uh, the mountain area where if you want to work on cool robotics technology, uh, there's a couple folks, but we're sort of, I think, fairly unique in this. And so you get people who join the company who are just incredibly excited. I, I think it helps with recruiting. We're also able to pull people out of the Bay Area. Um, I'd say initially it was a bit tough. It was kind of tough to raise funding. Most of our backers were uh, on the coast. Uh, which is why I'm so excited about, uh, you know, range. Um, I think this is the kind of, uh, you know, institution that really helps uh, elevate Colorado. But when we were fundraising back, especially at the season series A, I was like basically living in San Francisco, uh, raising money. Um, but, uh, you know, a little bit of travel and you kind of get the best of both worlds. Any other companies in Colorado that you're excited about right now, aside from AMP? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple. So uh, one of your guys' companies, I think Zuma, um, I think is a really good example of where AI helps make certain things that would have been difficult to scale 
much more scalable now. And so you can just have these much more efficient sort of scalable companies that come out of it. Very excited about that. And, and just a great example of sort of these generative techniques. I also, I'm a huge fan of Lightship. I know one of the founders there, uh, Toby, um, you know, they're making this electric RV. I just think it's the coolest thing. And, um, I think also when it comes to like real hardware, it, it seems like something is changing in manufacturing. And you see this with, you know, obviously groups like Tesla, but, but, um, also groups like Lightship, you know, new materials, storage technology and renewables just allow people to think about physical products in a new way. And I, I just, that also gets me very excited. Yeah. I agree. Lightship is super cool. Good reminder. We should, we should try to have Toby on the, on the show because it's, it's really incredible. The stuff that they're doing. And it's just great to see so much of this type of thing take off in Colorado as well. Um, with robotics, with, with EVs. There's just a number of companies. And we had Bob, Bob Hall on from Outrider. Before, I mean, they're doing some incredible stuff as well. So, really inspiring to see see all of you kind of collectively in that in that part of the tech industry taking off in Colorado. Uh, I wanted to turn now, Matanya, to the reason we're here, which is to hear about your biggest lesson. Obviously, in nine years of building Amp, all the way to, to Series C company and and with a lot of scale, you've learned a bunch of stuff. So, if you had to boil it down, what is the biggest? You know, it, it's tough to kind of think of one, but I, you know, one that I think has been really important. It took me a while to internalize is, you know, if you know what you're doing and you've kind of scoped what you're going after the right way, the engineering side of building the startup is kind of, I, I wouldn't say the easy thing, but at least the more straightforward thing. You have control over what's going to happen. Um, product market fit and really understanding your customer in a deep way, uh, in a way they don't necessarily understand their, themselves is obviously hard. And anybody who's been in a startup, I think, has lived through this. But the lesson I've taken from this is to always try to find uh, technology solutions that can be put in front of customers quickly so that you can iterate from there. And this is, I think, a pretty unnatural act when it comes to hardware startups and especially robotic startups. But it's been really important for us to be able to basically create devices, even if they're not fully baked, and put them in front of customers and start the sales cycle, engage appetite, even before that product is fully baked. And so I have this heavy bias towards that. I'll give you an example of this, which is we so we, we built this robot. It's a sorting robot. It can outcompete a person. It picks up bottles and cans and paper and cardboard and everything else. And this is interesting because you go to these recycling facilities and you see the spot at the end of the facility, uh, they call it the residue line, where all the leftovers are going to go to the landfill. And so with this robot, we kind of went to these customers and we said, Hey, we can, we can put a robot in this spot. We'll recover all the aluminum cans and plastic bottles that you're losing to the landfill. The robot's going to have a two year payback in most cases. Isn't this great? Don't you want this? And what we found is customers would kind of hem and haw on this. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. And it was sort of mind blowing. It'd be like, are you kidding? Like this is going to make over a hundred thousand dollars a year for you with very little effort. Um, and then you sort of dig deeper and deeper and you find out that. Structurally, their contracts are arranged so that the commodity value of what they're pulling out, they actually don't capture very much of that. They capture a fraction of that. And most of it is rebated back to the municipality. So the city or whoever's actually bringing them the recyclables. So if we put a robot in and it captures $100,000 a year worth of commodities, that recycling facility might only get 25% of it, 25000 Now, the return profile of that robot is totally different. Like a two-year payback starts to become much longer. And this is a pretty important subtlety. It's inconsistent across our customer base. Customers don't like, they won't necessarily kind of like talk about it in this way. Um, and the only way for us to really kind of get to the bottom of it was to be putting a very concrete proposal in front of them that sort of where you needed to have a commercial conversation, understand what they were going through. A high level conversation like never uncovered this for us. 
And so as a result, like the commercial positioning of our robots and everything had to change. Um, and so we do sell robots. They do deliver a lot of value for the recycling facilities. But material capture as the selling point was really much less important than reducing costs, which they get to capture the benefit of. And as a result, we've also created now robots that are really... Um, um, like there's interesting lessons you can take away from this. Performance is less important than reliability for these guys and things like this. But I think an example for me of having something concrete to talk to a customer about where you have a commercial hypothesis that you can put in front of them and have them argue against. Like I'm always in a rush to get to that stage and typically getting to that stage requires you to have some sense of some product. Uh, and so I'm always in a rush to have some product that I can be putting in front of people. Even if after getting the contract, I'll turn around and then finish off the product. Um, but yeah, these lessons of product market fit, like those are the surprising ones. And those are the ones that determine the success of the business. And so you just want to uncover those as quickly as possible. That's really interesting. I mean, certainly I think it's been talked a lot about in software, right? About ship it and, you know, minimum viable product and, and get that in front of customers as quickly as possible. Obviously in software, you can usually make changes, course corrections much more quickly. And as you mentioned in hardware, how have you thought about striking that balance, right? Between the lead time required to go build the thing in hardware, which can be significantly longer, such that you don't necessarily disappoint a customer if you, you know, overpromise by putting something in front of them right away. How have you navigated that? You know, it's, I think there's a lot more flexibility if you're able to align the kind of commercial structure behind what you're trying to do. So as an example here, we may potentially be putting robots out in the field that have issues that we didn't anticipate. And so there's sort of two choices, two ways to look at this. You're going to ship a, let's say, a suboptimal product, and your customers are going to pay for that, and then your reputation is going to get hurt as a result. An alternative is to say, actually, what you're going to do is something that's more like software as a service. Like, what are they really buying from you? They don't want a robot. They want sort of picking capacity or some sort of performance. Okay, if we back our hardware up with some sort of extensive service contract... Like, yes, it can get us recurring revenue streams and things like this in the future. But now we have the flexibility to go in and basically fix these systems or adapt them to something that's closer to product market fit and baking that into our cost structure. Like we know we're probably going to come back and visit these robots and maintain them and do different things for our customers. And, um, and, and that just became, you know, part of our commercial offering to, to kind of match how we wanted to move against, um, what was good for the customer and what, I've kind of found is there's lots of opportunities to do this and just make your business model match the state of the technology. A different example might be we're, we're now building entire recycling facilities. And so these are big, big pieces of infrastructure. Uh, we're sorting literal tons of material each hour. And there's all sorts of stuff our recycling facilities do that are unusual for the conventional uh, recycling facilities. And so we wanted to kind of get them out quickly. And again, what we've done is we've attached sales of these recycling facilities with a strong, strong service component. What we've wanted to find out was, is it more important? What's most important to our customer? Is it capacity? Is it data? Is it reliability? By having a strong service component where we're heavily involved with the system, we're providing software updates, we can basically adapt that system to what becomes most important to them. And we can also cover for any gaps in how we've, um, we can cover any gaps in how that system has been installed or anything like that um, for moving quickly. And it's really interesting. I mean, you talk about finding these nuances in industries, particularly things as complex or as established as recycling, right? You, you've seen a ton. I saw a ton in, in, in home services even, right? When I was back at, at Home Advisor, Angie, how do you, like, how did you get up to speed, particularly as a technologist, 
and kind of integrate yourself into the recycling world to even be in a position to have these kind of conversations with the right people to really even uncover these these nuances. Well, yeah, I, I was coming from a place of kind of zero, like I had no relationships in the industry and you know very little knowledge. Um, so, you know, I think there were really two layers to it. The first was is you know not having a whole lot of pride and just being willing to go places, ask dumb questions and find the nice people who were going to kind of fill you in. And so I did a lot of that. The first two years of the company was me going to conferences and kind of like just meeting people and and learning the industry. Um, what I found is, at least for us, the technology we have is pretty exciting for people who have been in the industry a while. And so these people naturally become your your champions within their organizations. But if you give them something to be excited about and to believe in and where they feel like they can be part of moving the industry forward, they can be very generous with their time and very honest with kind of how things really work in the industry. And as long as you really you come with the right level of respect for the knowledge that they have. And so they really feel like you are listening and, and really hearing them and appreciating what they're giving you. I, I've just found that it's, it's very hard to find a place where people don't bring that kind of mindset to, to conversations. But I, I think maybe another point I might make is it's easy to look at a lot of different industries. Like recycling is, as I said, a pretty funky. And so, you know, you kind of come in, you're like, oh, like these idiots, like, you know, I'm smarter than them uh, in some way. And they like sort of don't get it or they're stuck in the past or something like this. It's very easy to have an attitude like that. Um, and, you know, it's um, industries are the way they are for a very good reason. And if you are sort of dismissive of some sort of industry structure or why something is important that doesn't seem like it should be important, like you probably don't understand. And so kind of coming with real curiosity and being like, I don't, get why things are the way they are. Like I need to understand one level deeper of what's going on, then you'll naturally be attracted to the right questions. Um, but I, I mean, I've never kind of come in with that attitude of like, I'm smarter than people, but I, I've seen other people do it. And, you know, people in the industry, they, I mean, they sniff it immediately uh, and they, they can feel the arrogance. And then, and people also just don't come willing to learn the fundamental lessons of whatever the industry has to offer. We, we see that too, but Tanya, I love that, that point where uh, we'll see founders and startups who will say, Hey, we're doing this, we're reinventing this industry and say, why is it not happening today? And their answer is just, well, the competitors are dumb, right? Or the, the industry's dumb. And certainly I'm sure that the founder is very smart. The solution sounds in theory, very elegant and very, very apt, but it's very rare when the answer to why it's not being done that way is because the people are just dumb, right? There's, there's could be some real structural issues, some historical anomalies. Like you really have to understand what those things are before you can effectively solve the problem in a way that, you know, people are actually going to want to buy what you're selling. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think a great example of this, lots of people have read this, but The Innovator's Dilemma uh, was sort of really eye-opening for me, not just because of what's in the book itself, like the, the lessons about innovation and disruptive innovation are interesting. But when I first read that book, I was like, oh my God, like what a great example of how like incentives create what looks like the wrong behavior. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're going to be driven by these incentives. And I, I just love that book because of that kind of broader macro lesson that's embedded in it. I, I totally agree. Right. And, and I think, was it Charlie Munger that talks about never underestimate the power of incentives? It's you know the yeah. most powerful force around. So if you want to know why things are done, just look for the incentives. And it's almost always, yes. <laughs> yeah. almost always exactly. a tell. Well, Matanya, thank you very much. Uh, Love what you guys are doing, obviously, and, and to the point where we, we invested ourselves out of range and wish you continued success with AMP and, and hopefully, you know, not only helping build the ecosystem in Colorado, but changing some of the messed up things about recycling 
globally for all of us. Where can folks follow along with what you guys are doing at AMP? People want to read uh, about what we're up to. Uh, you can follow us at AMP Robotics on Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active there. And I, I would have to say, Adam, it's a pleasure working with Range. Really love the team you guys have and I love what you guys are doing. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks so much for Tanya. Thanks. Appreciate you coming on. 